You were there for the spherical dryer incident, though, with the, I forget what the compound was, but we had dubbed it Crunchberries because yeah, it would turn, it had multiple polymorphs that were three different colors. And depending on, and I mean, I don't mean slightly different. These things, one was orange, one was white, and one was like deep red. I mean, they were massively different. And again, this was the way I found out about it. I was walking to the plant in the morning. The same process champion was walking down the hall. Vince, what happened? He said, the dryer doesn't turn anymore. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Welcome, everyone, to our spooky stories edition of our podcast. So anyway, the, um, the pharma industry is famous for them. So in advance of this Halloween, we decided to explore a different kind of spooky story. Tales best told by candlelight on Zoom, or when gathered around a roaring virtual bonfire on our computers in the cool of the late autumn or on Ring Central. So when most of us were kids, we used to share scary stories with our friends. And more often than not, we would exaggerate a little bit or a lot, of course, in some cases to make the story juicier. Uh, but now as grown-ups and professionals, we still have some scary stories to tell. <clears throat> Only this time they come from the workplace, and they're 100% real. So like everyone else, scientists love a good ghost story or two. Working late into the evening in locations around the world, it's no wonder that strange experiences have given way to ghostly legends. Process chemists, analytical gurus, formulation scientists, quality assurance individuals especially, and regulatory folks uh, have reported spooky stories of all kinds ranging from the uncanny sound of a failed batch to seeing the apparition of process or analytical methods that is not under control, huddled over an unsigned batch record in the late of night in the plant. Often these unsettling experiences are explained away by fatigue or an overactive imagination or no budget. Sometimes, however, a story is just a little too real, a little too strange and told by someone not known for flights of fancy. In these cases, these stories begin to make their way around the agency, maybe, whispered in the dim of the evening after a long day's work, usually beginning with the words, hey, did you hear the story about dot dot dot. So in the spirit of Halloween, we have a virtual event, Halloween edition podcast planned today, and we'll be looking for a few people here in the group to share their most terrifying work experiences, to get giggles and tears of joy, of course, the goosebumps, face palms, etc. So we'll encourage uh, these real life experiences, maybe in combination with some background and uh, round up to the work that uh, they may have been doing at this time. All the stories you may hear are maybe true. Sometimes the names of people, places will be changed to protect the spooks, of course. So without further ado, here are some scary ideas to encourage your participation and stories and a few tips that maybe will help you avoid being on this list for next year. Happy hauntings. I was thinking about like, you know how we, we've all been, maybe not all of us, but most of us have been in like facilities late at night or landing, you know, landing off a plane late at night or getting up early or just being in very odd CMOs, you know, with very strange people. 
And I think we've um, probably all encountered some sort of spooky situation. Um, so I was trying to get some some of you, anybody has a good experience. I sent some samples. One of the one of the guys I'm going to rely on here is is Dave Adams, because he always has a story. And he always likes to tell a story. And I used to work with him. And one of the things I used to hang out at the plant there at Lanza late night once in a while, or leave late night. And there was like a guard shack. Do you remember that guard shack out front? Very secure facility. The fence is all over. And there was this guard shack. He happened to meet someone special at the guard shack. <laughs> I won't go into that story. Um, so there was a few nights there. There were some interesting people that worked there and some over the, over the years. Um, I don't want to be the first to tell the story, but, you know, in, those, in that type of um, motif, like if we want it, does anyone have any good stories? It could be, you know, you had a batch record in your hand and you, you put it down and then suddenly you came back and it was gone or you heard, I mean, I worked in a couple labs. Do you remember the, Dave, the old Lonzo labs before um, I helped remodel them, the process development labs, how spooky that lab was? Yeah, it's because it was built backwards. It was, and it was, there was holes in the walls. And when, when it got windy at night, you know, you, you thought people were in there and it was yeah, very- I, I designed that lab, but I was absent when they started to build the plant. And one day I went down this, see the construction and I yeah. was looking and the fellow was building the lab and he literally had the drawing upside down. He was building a window on the inside wall facing into the storage room. Right. I thought, I said, you know, you might as well just block that up. We don't need a window facing inward. So the, I mean, everything was backwards. The, the, the office area was on the wrong side of the lab. You had to walk through the lab to the office. The fume hood was by the front door. The window was on the inside. <laughs> they built it backwards. That's a spooky story. See, so Dave doesn't even know, but he already contributed to the conversation here. Anybody, uh, anybody want to start next? I think Coleman probably has a good story or two. He worked at Eximius, a company that I worked at uh, with him, and we we were there late, not late nights, but like six, seven o'clock at night, and we had some interesting management team. Other than the fact that it was like totally empty, and we had like ten pin bowling up the uh, the empty corridors. That's one that I, I think Eileen and Tony still have the uh, the little plastic bowling ball and pins that we used to or that used to get used. Um, but yeah, like, like that was that was a virtual organization, so it was not really a lot of spooky horror stories within uh, in terms of facilities and stuff. Ones yeah. I can think of personally are sort of GMP horror stories. <laughs> where, hey, you've got a manufacturing plant, and this was back in the mid '80s when I was starting off and didn't know any better, and. Uh, I worked very briefly for a, uh, a company that was making me what would now be classed as medical sponges, but they literally were doing it in a converted barn in the back of a plastics factory out in middle of nowhere, France. And they had like built everything based made out of wood and they were like making these sponge-like products that were uh, made from all sorts of nasty noxious chemicals like sulfuric acid and formaldehyde. And, uh, and they were then just, they dug a big hole out the backyard and they just pumped all the waste into it and that was it. <laughs> so 
there, the, but the best part of it was like right outside the sort of converted shed was this beautiful big old cherry tree that was in bloom and started to fruit while I was there. And I can tell you, I've never tasted cherries as delicious as the ones that were being fed and rooted from the formaldehyde and sulfuric acid that was being pumped into the soil. So, so like, it must be something for any of the gardeners out there. If you want to get your crops growing well, nitrogen stuff, just formaldehyde and sulfuric acid. That's your Cherries that'll last forever. Yes, exactly. Do they glow in the dark? Um, I don't know, actually. Uh, I yeah, it was France. Nobody ever worked late there. Sorry, you're lucky that they were. The only reason I was over there was because it was August and all the management that might normally have been uh, there was off someplace. So they said, get the Irish. Education. Yeah. yeah. These poor, like, rural, not well educated French guys that were being sort of bossed around by me and my, like, grade school French sort of thing. So that was, it was a wonder that anything got made that month. Yeah, we won't send this to uh, to our French clients. Just definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Catherine's not on there. She's no. like, yes, the total antithesis of <laughs> the GMP nature of that production. So, so that's that's interesting, Dennis. Um, I, how about how about you? I can tell you have some good spooky stories from your career. <laughs> the time I got, I was shredding documents in the front office when the gate inspector walked in. That was one of those moments where, you know, you know a good relationship with the local inspector paid off. She's, what are you shredding? I said, these are business-sensitive documents, <laughs> which they were. They are just drafts of contracts, <clears throat> that kind of crap. And it just, you, you know. Good answer. But that was the same FDA inspector that on her first visit to our facility, at her at that time, she was probably in her late, maybe 26, 27-year-old, tall, very attractive young lady, got hit on by one of our compounders because he didn't know she was with the FDA. She was standing there waiting to get into the bathroom. All right, rule number three, keep it clean, keep it clean. Well, you know it's a bad day when the local news crew is sitting in the lobby when you walk in. Yeah. This, this was before TikTok as well, right? <laughs> All right. Any any more good ones? I, I feel like you have a wealth of them. I don't want to. I don't want to keep pushing you off to save some for the actual Halloween party. I got off this plane. I'm walking down the terminal. I'm like exhausted. I want to go home. And I get approached by this man in like a hoodie, and he's like, "Excuse me, um, Aaron. I'd like to talk to you." And I'm like. This is like really freaking weird. And I'm just like kind of keep walking because I'm thinking like he's thinking I'm somebody else and he's whatever. And he's like, Aaron. And I'm like, just like keep walking, blah, 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 blah. So I'm, you know, he's like, I'm from Homeland Security. I need to talk to you. And I'm like, walking, walking, walking. And I'm debating do I jump into the bathroom and like call 911 or like, you know, so I just like, I keep going from the turnstiles, keep going, I go downstairs to the luggage area where I am met by another Homeland Security TSA guy. Uh oh. And so they thought I was this woman named Erin who had just got off some other flight. They weren't really paying attention to what flight I was on. And I looked just like her. And they were like, please come over here to the side, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, freaking out. I was like texting him and I'm like, 
these crazy people are trying to convince me they're Homeland Security and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so if I am like, you know, I luckily I had my driver's license, I had my passport, I had my business cards, and you, you know, because he calls it in like just like a traffic stop, you know, and he's like, wow, you know. So I was scared totally because I actually am a doppelganger for probably a felon. Probably, probably a lady named Aaron, uh, Aaron as well. Aaron? That sounds like, right? Aaron. Yeah. And and so, like, I got this guy's um, business card because I was like, I need your business card. Like, are you for real? And I still have it with me and I carry it with me when I travel so I can call him and go, hey, they think I'm Aaron again. <laughs> that was kind of creepy. I, I think that was a good one. It, was it sounds like my problem. I've gone through airports and the machines, you, know, you go to do check-in at the kiosk and it kicks out a message that says, there is a problem, you need to go see an agent. Oh. And I go up there and I sometimes they just look at stuff and say, okay. Other times they call over a manager and they, they start pointing at the monitor, which you know on the other side of the counter, I can't see it. And they sit there and they whisper to each other and they look at it and they stare at my face. And they look back at the monitor, stare at my say, yeah, he's all right. And then everything's good. I thought, what was all right about what? You have a doppelganger. Yeah. yeah. So at one point, I somebody actually did say to me uh, something about, there's another person with your name, but you're not him. I said, <laughs> yeah, I know that. <laughs> one day, well, one time quiet, I was coming through New Orleans. Having an interesting, odd Irish name. Yeah. Like there are, I think, five of me elsewhere. And I'm, I'm friends on Facebook with one of them in Australia. Well, this this fellow apparently has my name, too, because I came through Mobile once, and the uh, customs person sat there and looked at my picture, looked at the screen back and forth, says, have you ever lived in uh, Mobile or something? I said, no. He goes, yeah, that's somebody else. I said, who is somebody else? He goes, never mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, just go to the post office and up on the wall with the other nine most wanted. Yeah. But the bottom line is I still can't do advanced register check-in at an airport. Really? That's why you drive to Boston. Got it. Yeah, well, that's another reason. I considered applying for that uh, special pass that you can get. Yeah. But in regular, I, I walk in, there's always a problem. Is that what the redress is for? Like when you have to like clear certain things and it's like, oh no, you are actually okay. Is that yeah, what the priest and PSA thing and but I still think they probably do it again anyways. But they already flagged the name, they're not gonna check the TSA badge. So I have a, a story that at the time I wasn't scared. I when when strange bad situations come up, I just handle them, then I worry about them later. Yeah. But in my first month of employment, I was working in a lab and I was given an experiment to run uh, liquid or sodium and liquid ammonia reductions. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but literally you turn a cylinder of ammonia gas upside down and pour out liquid into a flask. And you put dry ice under it, keep it down to about negative 50 so that you maintain liquid ammonia in a round bottom flask. And somebody had done these experiments before I joined the company. And so I was doing scale up. I was doing this on a 12 liter scale. In the early days, this wasn't a walking hood. This was a bench hood 
with a big 12-liter flask sitting on the bench and nothing between it and me but a pull-down sash. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a jacketed vessel with a temperature-controlled unit. It was just a ball of dry ice underneath of it. So the procedure was to pump the cylinder, fill the 12 liters of liquid ammonia in a flask and, you know, stay back enough in case any vapors got out of the fume hood. Then take a can of sodium, open it up, and chop up the sodium to small bits so you could drop it into the flask. And each bit of sodium immediately dissolves in the ammonia. First one's a very dark blue, and after that it turns so black you can't see any color. But it's, you know, it's pretty amazing how a metal can dissolve in liquid ammonia. And then you charge in your organic material to do the reduction. Well, the deal was that as we would add these sodium pieces into the ammonia, it was endothermic. It would actually get colder. One day I was doing this and I just happened to notice the thermometer was going up. It went from negative 50, negative 48, negative 46. And I looked, I thought, that's odd. It usually stays cold. And I look, I said, it's sitting in dry ice, and I, but it's still getting hotter. So I put in some more sodium and it got even hotter. And then I was thinking the boiling point of ammonia is negative 33. I'm up to 43. I've got 10 degrees to go before this boils over. So I put in a few more pieces of sodium and it got hotter yet. I thought, okay, another four or five degrees, this is going to boil over and I'm going to have an explosion of ammonia. But there's sodium in it, which we all know catches fire when it hits air. So I'm thinking fire and ammonia gas, this is going to be bad. <laughs> I've got 12 liters of liquid, you know, ideal gas law tells me that's hundreds of liters of gas. I'm going to blow up the whole lab here. <laughs> So I called for my supervisor. I said, look at this, the temperature's going up. He says, put another piece in. I did. It went up to about negative 30, or um, the other way, negative 35. I had about four degrees to go. He says, all right, I know what's happening, but we got to get it out of here. I said, how? If we pick this up to take it out of here, it won't be in the dry ice. And he goes, yep, that's what we're going to do. So he started calling orders. You hold the door open. You get a cork ring. You run outside, put the cork ring on the ground. Dave, put on a rubber apron and a face shield. Grab this and get it out of here. And that's what I did. I picked up this 12-liter thing that was about to blow up, ran out of the lab, put it out in the lawn, and, it, and then we all backed up and watched it explode. What? Was it not sodium? The the mad... The, and again, I you know, I like... Uh, people with experience, and that's how I like working with this company. There's always people here that have lots of knowledge. This consultant I was working for knew immediately what happened. He says, get the ammonia cylinder, pump some more out through a piece of tubing, but put some cotton in the tubing. I did, and sure enough, you could see rust collecting in the cotton. He says, these cylinders are rusty inside. Everybody takes the gas out. We are the only people that turn it upside down to take out liquid. We got rust reacting with our sodium. So ever after, we then filtered our liquid ammonia and we also put filters in the plant before we went to commercial scale. <laughs> oh, yay. Nothing got blown up. No kaboom. Talk about blowing up a plant. <laughs>
Dave, Dave has like a lot of. I think I could just record you for like you know twenty four hours, seven days a week, and just make a Netflix series out of you or something like that. You have so many stories. They're all there's a lot of danger involved in all of them. Yes. The next project they gave me was to try and micronize some uh, KOH chips. Oh. Wanted to try to do the reduction with powdered KOH. <laughs> they sent me into a storeroom next to the lab with this little mill and said, "Here, feed this through." I had KOH dust all over the place. And you're alive to tell about it. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, this is for Robbie, actually. There was a ghost in one plant who uh, <clears throat> they, they filled out two different executed batch records. There was a real one, and then there was a fake one that we caught on an audit. I know Robbie would like that. Oh! <laughs> that was fun. That's that was in the Bahamas. <laughs> How about Paul Long? Did he disappear? I, I I know he has a good story or two. His fish are still here. Well, yeah, his fish right. are going to tell the story because it's a pretty interesting have, story of how he got them, I'm sure. I helped him catch one of the fish in his tank about four weeks ago. That's what I was referring Actually, to. Actually, my son, my son did. I have, I have a video and pictures of it. And I have a good, like, so he, I think it's called a pompadour. It's a little white fish, very rare. So we were out in the um, Ocean City, New Jersey. And he had this giant net. This guy's a major fisherman. And you, you should see some of the creatures that live in the surf. I had no idea, right? Within seconds, he was gone. I saw him like running towards his car, you know, with a bucket. Because he, he drives, he lives about just 10 minutes away. He wanted to make sure he got in his tank. So if he doesn't have a, a horror story or a spooky story, I was going to ask him to tell us a fish story. Mm. But maybe he's, maybe that's, maybe he turned into a fish. Is that him? Yeah, really. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's mystical. Sure. happy hour here. Like we, somebody wished him to be a fish. <laughs> there he is. His ears were ringing. We were talking about you. We need a we need a spooky story or we need a good fish story. I just got invited to go tuna fishing sun Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. It's not spooky. When I'm first working um, graveyard in the emergency department in college. This is a while back. When you're working graveyard, you do everything. You, you know, register the patients, you help the doctors and nurses when they ask, you admit patients, you run the lab stuff to the lab. You also retrieve medical records. And medical records in those days were paper. And the older records were in whatever those cardboard boxes in the bowels of the basement. So every once in a while, a patient would come in that had been there 15 years ago or something, and I would have to go down and walk. This is in the middle of the night, no one around. Walk down to the basement, past the morgue, through the boiler room, into this dark, dank, dusty place with like rats, and dig through boxes for uh, for the records. And sometimes, you know, we'd have a stretcher or something out in front of the morgue waiting for something, and you'd be walking past it. But what else? Um, oh, I would train. I would train the other unit secretaries sometimes, and it was always fun. Um, invariably, you know, someone comes in and they're pronounced, and I know what's going on. So I would hand the clipboard to the trainee and say, "Go get, go get information back in." his <laughs> bed and send them back to get information from a dead person <laughs> well that wasn't nice <laughs> but anyway, it was part of it, it was a good so I only have one question how many times did that stretcher move when you walked past it oh yeah there's um, 
there are there are things about dead bodies have some movement to them. We would that would happen in the ER. Yeah. Yeah. So I was working through college in in the OR. And of course, being the low grunt like Paul, I've got all the bad tasks, which included carrying specimens off to the path lab. And one day they were doing a, a AK amputation above the knee. And the scrub nurse wrapped up the amputated leg and so on and tagged it and so on and said, here, Dave, this needs to go. I picked it up and the foot started jerking. And I said something to the effect like, this one's not dead yet and half the nurses in the room started barfing and ran out and the surgeon said don't ever do that to my staff again i need those guys <laughs> and robbie anybody anybody else jump jump in here we're, we're just getting warmed up here we we don't want to go too long we want to we, we want to save for the rest of the stories for later but any anything yeah. from you robbie well, I, I think you need more api guys in this discussion because yeah. they're the ones who tend to like blow things up that's right. People obviously, seem like they've got medical experience, or like those analytical folks, or QA folks. Like the, there's not necessarily a lot of uh, horror stories that happen. Looking through, how about you, Valerie? I, Valerie's not. I don't know if you you grew up in the pharma industry, but is you know you could say that it's scary just working at DSI and attending these. <laughs> <laughs> I read some scary stuff online, and uh, but no, I. I, I've scared myself, you know, I was working late one night and we had liquid oxygen on site. Every once in a while you get a hiss or a clank or a, something weird and, the, and the, the, the warehouse was making an awful lot of noise one night. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go home. I'm just going to go on home. It was dark and I go out and I have to, you know, walk like this path in the bushes through the way to get to the car I was driving and and I'm just on edge on edge I get in and 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 I close the door and I see something to my left and I look and I'm scared to death I saw myself in the mirror <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but that was that was that was almost as much fun as the magnetic um, I, I worked with electromagnets where you have your laminated pieces of metal and like when you have an MRI, they, they pound. And we had a setup in the back and we were playing with with uh, cans and stuff, shooting them across the room <laughs> and having fun. And, and, you know, again, I was the last one in the office. It was seven o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, I, I could hear in the shop the, the magnets pounding. I'm thinking, well, maybe they didn't turn that thing off. And I go back, and, and it's off. Um, I hear, you know, the, the hissing again, but it was nitrogen for cooling. And I'm like, wait a minute. And then it goes off again. And I, I just, I didn't turn the lights out. I just took off. I just ran out, got in my car, and went home. The next morning, I was talking to one of the engineers, and he said, yeah, you know, we have, I think he said it was a capacitor that had a mind of its own, and it would discharge every so often, and that was sending the, 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 the electricity into the magnet. Wow. So it was turned off, and it was still working. It was alive, but it was dead. And I, I never went back there 
again when I worked there. I stayed out of the shop. It just—it was just too weird. You never knew what would get up yeah. across the room. Capacitor, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't have any like horror stories. Uh, I started at a pharmaceutical company probably about ten years ago, um, and when I went to go and interview there, it was like an empty, vacant building. Not one place there. Nobody was there. I opened the door. It's literally just rubble on the ground inside this shell of a building. And I'm like, okay, this can't be right. So I just keep walking the area to find a door that doesn't look like it has construction in it. And finally, somebody walks out. <laughs> and going inside the place is a little bit better than the rubble. But we go in, and it's just the shell of a building again. And they plan to do early stage development and then tech transfer it back into their company overseas. And that's where I wound up in the pharmaceutical industry early on in my career. So that all happened in like October around Halloween? Or was there very- Yeah, and we actually got a glass box, probably like bigger than like the building itself. And it's a small company. So it's like three or four of us, uh, an admin, a QA person, a formulation guy, um, and then the CEO of the company at back then. And we had to open this box with like a chainsaw because nobody could figure it out. Um, and our first lunch and learn it was from the QA guy saying, this is not what not to do on how to open a box from GLAD. Oh, and then figuring out the electrical to get that in there was fun. Mm. But yeah. So Moran, Miranda, the, so you went in and it looked like an empty building, but there were only like three or four people in, in the entire building? So um, the building hadn't been fully built out yet. So it was just oh, okay. a shell. And I guess it's built as you want it type of facility. So like if somebody wanted the whole building, they could have it. And we were at this like sliver of a corner. Um, we go in there and it's just, it, it's a little bit more furnished or finished than it was in the shell of the building that literally did not have a floor. So that was fun. Yeah. Well, talk think, about empty buildings. I was, I got a job at uh, American Cyanamid in Princeton. And, you know, I had a report to HR. So I, 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 I was sitting in, H, in the uh, HR waiting room for an hour, then two hours, then three hours, and then four hours. No one was at the receptionist desk. <laughs> Finally, somebody came out and I said, what is going on? I said, I was supposed to start work today. I'm still sitting in, in the uh, receptionist area. And they said, well, American Home put in a hostile bid to take over our company and we're in big time meetings in the back and we totally forgot about you. So that was my first day at uh, Cyanamid. Left an impression on you. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> well, that's fun. I was just ready to go home. I really was just ready to leave. Yes. I have a couple email horror stories, but uh, I'll save this for later. <laughs> you mean like where you suddenly realize you've sent something inappropriate to half your client base? <laughs> Yeah, one of my clients just did that about two months ago. Was they're they're working to find a second CMO, and he accidentally sent a letter to that CMO, but he sent it to the first company. Okay. And yeah. immediately, please don't, you know, please ignore and so on. But the fellow in the first company that he sent it to 
was the head of international contracts. Okay. So he says they know about it now. They know about their competition. Well, maybe it's maybe it was strategic. And anybody? So I, I, I don't have a scary story. Yeah. But I have a frightening image I can share. Okay. <laughs> and it might be especially frightening to any of you who have ever been laid off or your site has been closed or you were downsized. So once you see it now, you can't unsee it. So I'm going to show it if you're ready. All right. Is everybody ready? Do we have to sign a, a consent form or anything or no? Uh, any mental disturbance or stress is your <laughs> own deal. Fair enough. That's a disclaimer. We got it in. A new rule for happy hour. Okay. Is it there? It's coming. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> back, in, back in 2017, I uh, was with Teva, and our site um, was announced to be closed, and everybody was going to be let go. So, in September, half of us were let go. I was there till December, but we went ahead with our annual Halloween costume party, <laughs> and there I am. My severed head count is what the sign says. So that's good. Like I said, not a scary. It was good enough for second place that year. That's okay. <laughs> it's what what won what, first place? Yeah, I was gonna say who won first. You know, I think I I think I got ripped off. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely got ripped off. That's the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> what did you win, Jim? <laughs> what was the prize? <laughs> oh. He stayed until December, and everybody else was laid off in September. Well, <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, I was in a position that I could decide for myself whether I was going to stay until December or September, but uh, not everyone had that choice. Okay, cool. That was a great, that was a great picture. Thank you for sharing. Kind of brought me back to some old Halloween parties we had at Small Biotechs, but uh, <clears throat> I, I don't think we took pictures for some reason. Here, any any uh, horror stories or scary, funny stories or spooky stories from? you know, visiting manufacturing facilities or any of your days. It, the funny story just hit with Coleman and his pillow. Back in the day, you got to understand, back in the day, Coleman was a bigger consultant than he is now. And he had a laptop to match his skills. <laughs> and he carried it into a conference room at a co client called Signature. And their drug substance CMC guy looked up and just fantastically out of the blue deadpan said, you got a weight belt for when you carry that one around? <laughs> it was an, it was a seventeen inch Dell, so it was so it wasn't that large. It just looked huge, I suppose. Yeah, I, I knew it. Yeah. What's wrong with seventeen inch Dells? It had it probably had the sec the second battery on the bottom. I can't remember that. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> How much did it weigh, though? That's the question. Um, too much, which is why, yeah, which is why I have a surface now. Probably the other scariest moment of my professional career was trying to follow Dave Adams as he showed me something in Excel. <laughs> so if anybody ever wants to do anything in Excel, Dave is the guy to call. But you got to understand, Dave doesn't use a mouse. Yeah, Randy, Randy Bliss was working with me a couple of weeks ago, and I was sharing something. And of course, you, from the other end, you don't see what the person's doing with the keyboard and the mouse. You just see the numbers changing. And he was like, 
how, how can those numbers be changing that fast? And I said, well, I'm doing the editing. Yeah, that's crazy. Excel's actually advanced a bit since back in the 1999, too. It's like a lot of more functionality. So if you don't use it, it's it's difficult. Like, you have to figure out where new things are and stuff. So it's impressive. Yeah, validatable. They do that every 10 years. They make it more difficult to use. Make sure you update <laughs> your resume and say you know Microsoft Excel, though, okay? Because that's a rare... Yes. So horror stories, I was thinking way back at the dark ages, um, working at that company I won't name, but SmithKline. In, in the days before corporations had things like change control and quality groups on site and so forth, SmithKline and others were organized as just a bunch of chemical operators. And that, that was it. There was no other functions on site. They didn't even have fences around the plants in those days. So one of the nice things is you could drive your car up and park next to the loading dock and take chemicals home. So I know a lot of the operators used to take toluene home to put in their uh, gas tanks. They would take methanol to put in their washer, you know, windshield washer tanks and so on. But if you left your car there too long, the fumes would take the paint off your car. So they didn't leave them there all day. But one of the things that I recalled uh, again, before change control, um, we had a process. We were running with um, acetic acid, water, and you charge in sodium nitrite as a crystal. Well, it reacts with the acid, makes nitrous acid, and you do a nitrosation. If you don't have the right balance, though, you end up making too much nitrous acid, and it foams up. And this reactor that we did this was on the second floor next to a staircase and one of the operators just happened to be looking over and the what pink foam from the batch was coming down the staircase and he yelled look and uh, one of the other shift leads says i know what that is he ran around the other end of the quad up the staircase and over to the reactor and um, also in those days operators didn't particularly close reactors they weren't inerted so why bother closing it you keep the lid open you can see what's happening he had to run over, throw the lid shut on the reactor, and then stand on the lid while another guy came over and tried to bolt the bolts shut. So he was literally standing on this thing, bouncing, while the foam was coming out of the reactor. Dave told a story about liquid ammonia and, and some, some scary situation there, but I, I just, I'm surprised, like I said last week, I'm surprised you survived this long with all these, these situational things that you've been in. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, I think I know Dave was there. Ed, you had to be there when we were all at Lanza together. When we overflowed an operator overflowed a caustic scrubber into a vessel full of phosphorus oxychloride. That's a little bit exothermic, boys and girls, and lets off a little bit of HCl gas. Uh, yeah. The the overheads on that vessel were glass. I wasn't on the floor, I don't think Dave was, but from I, I knew I became good friends with one of the operators on the floor in a later life. The, the glass risers were about five, six inches in diameter, about 20 two feet. meters long, and they were joined together with a Teflon seal. From what he told me, you could watch these pieces of glass swing from side to side and HCl gas shoot out of them. That, 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 that quality. Yeah, we were lucky no one ever got killed on that one. We really were. Hmm. So the moral of the story on my pink phone was I found out later that this uh, plant manager 
was like the operators. He was not a college educated person. He was just this experienced operator been promoted. He got the idea the year before that they could increase the batch size if they cut out 30% of the water. So that's why they tended to foam over about every 10th batch. He had made the batches more concentrated than they were designed to be. That's like early stage process development back before. <laughs> yeah, before any chemist or any whatever, he just decided he was going to change. Another thing that particular manager did is that was the year I joined the company and uh, uh, they got warning that, uh, what was it, methyl, I guess carbon tetrachloride was a no-no, can't use it anymore. So he had a process that ran in carbon tet. He says, I can't use this anymore. Can you run an experiment and try to do it in methylene chloride? I said, well, yeah, it'll probably work, but you can't do it. He goes, well, we can do it. I said, no, it's, it's not gonna work in the plant. So he argued and argued. So I did the experiment, the chemistry worked. And I said, there, it works. He said, okay, we're gonna change it. So he ran a batch and then he came back some point afterwards and said, something's wrong. We distilled the batch and I can't find the methylene chloride. It's not in the receiver. And I said, yeah. He goes, do you know where it is? I said, yeah, it's out in the middle of Upper Marion Township. He goes, why is that? I said, because you tried distilling it with a non-refrigerated condenser. You can't use that stuff in a plant. He blew it all away. Yeah, that sounds like the old days. But he was happy it wasn't carbon tech. We, yeah, we, Dan and I used to go to these things, Scientific Update. There was the fellow, I can't remember his name now, Trevor Laird. Trevor. Laird. I, I actually bumped Trevor. into him again. He's still around in England, but go ahead. Yeah, he, like, so it reminded me of that story you told. I don't know if Dan was there for that um, conference thing. It was in Montreal, but he told stories back in like the 70s. Yeah. Where they, they had these old reactors in the UK, and there was explosions, and they would find the reactors yeah. like miles away. Oh, yeah. From like something right yes trevor laird came from a plant a smith klein plant over in south part of england that used to be a gunpowder plant the plant had wooden floors in it designed so that you didn't make any static charges walking around <laughs> right. i have to invite him to one of the future happy hours to tell stories too like these these folks like that they have like stories that were never captured We've, yeah how about you Jason? every week <laughs> lately <laughs> Any good pro project management horror stories or supply chain horror stories? How about so, Maria? <clears throat> how about yourself? Any any interesting um, stuff? Uh, you know, maybe a little history, a little background. We're all interested here. <laughs> you know, I was just trying to think. I, I, one of the craziest things that I remember is we found a, an obliterated pen inside of a bioreactor at another at a CMO, and we had to go through hell for that to figure out the impact of the outside of the pens being in a bioreactor for so long inside our drugs. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, there's all these things that happen. I just can't remember. <laughs> yeah. I've actually been a place where we did heavy duty analysis on bungee cords. Yes. <laughs> Sounds familiar. And the best part, part of it was uh, about, about two months later, I, I, I was walking into the plant as the guy in charge of that process was walking out in a tie and jacket. And I said, Vince, what's up? He said, I got to go to Rahway. And I said, why are you going to Rahway? He said, they found another bungee cord. <laughs> and I said, Vince, you banned bungee cords after that last incident. He said, yeah, the operators have decided to bring in their own. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah. the operators were using them for belts too. Yeah. Hey, so for the Lonza guys, I just something just came to my mind here and it was I when I when we first got on I was talking about accidentally sending a, an email to my boss and I had to go delete it from his office. This was our boss at Alonza. I never knew that. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah, and so so the funny thing was he was he was a very sophisticated, experienced process chemist. Wink, wink, as Dan smiles. And I remember he was managing our lab, and he never actually was did process chemistry. So it was the the PD lab was very foreign to him. But we had a we had a, a number of thermometers, mercury thermometers up there, and I was there later one day in the afternoon, and um. I accidentally dropped one because I was trying to like hustle and get a couple of things done. And it was one of those, uh, you guys know Mercury, when it, when it comes out of the thing, it's bead, it beads and it looks like crazy little things running over the floor, right? So he wanted to help me. So he, to, to clean it up, and he was very scared by the Mercury. So he got these index cards and he started running around after these beads, trying to scoop them up <laughs> and put them back. But so that was, that was the, pre, the prelude for this, this fellow. So, and I, I liked the guy. He was a nice, nice boss. Bad boss, but he was a good one. Um, we Dan, remember this one? Uh, we had the lab that I talked about. Um, I think last week, uh, Dave Adams, you you spoke about the lab that was built there. It was built backwards because the contractors had the diagram upside down, and this is before I got there. So anyway, it was a really bad lab. And the they actually there had no air conditioning or climate control. They had the hoods, which would suck the you know air out. But it was 90 degrees in the summer, 95 degrees. So I don't know if you were there, Dan, during that time, but the boss, his name will be unnamed, but he, he went into the, um, the dry ice container and he wanted to help us stay cool. So he actually put dry ice in these, in these bomb calorimeters on the floor, took the lids off, and he put a fan in front of him, thinking that he would keep us cool. And in fact, I have a picture. It almost looked like it, it looked like a graveyard, like the dry ice, the, the steam was going across the floor. <laughs> Were you there for that one? That was just... That was the ultimate that he was not a process chemist and probably shouldn't have been managing the lab. But I, I had an office at that point with air conditioning, so I never went up and saw you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was there. So our, another batch, the first year I started, they called me out, emergency, we have a problem. The batch is kind of thick. It was a process that was a, a, a small alkane with a chlorine on one end, nitrogen on the other. So if it gets too hot, it can self-condense and you can get polymers. The purpose of the process was to put it half of the batch in the reactor and distill it. And somebody got the idea, why don't we put it all in, distill it all at once? Well, if you put in tw the whole batch, you have twice as much. It takes twice as long to distill it, twice as much time for it to polymerize. And that's what happened. It, by the time I got out there in the plant, it got so thick, the agitator stopped. So they said, something's wrong with this stuff. It's getting too thick. Let's heat it up and thin it out. That made it a bit worse. Then they said, well, maybe it needs some solvent. Let's put some toluene in and see if we can dissolve it. So they tried refluxing toluene. By the next day, it had turned completely solid. They froze the entire reactor with a solid block of plastic in it. Hmm. So it then we got a small jackhammer and an operator sat in the man white lift with this thing it took three days to chip the stuff out of the reactor this was, this you were there for the spherical dryer instrument though with the i forget what the compound was but we had dubbed it crunch berries because yeah, it would turn it had multiple polymorphs that were three different colors 
And depending on, and I mean, I don't mean slightly different. These things, one was orange, one was white, and one was like deep red. I mean, they were massively different. And again, this was the way I found out about it. I was walking to the plant in the morning. The same process champion was walking down the hall. Vince, what happened? He said, the dryer doesn't turn anymore. It was a meter and a half spherical dryer. And I think, Dave, you know, it's, yeah. And so it had a giant agitator in it. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't turn anymore? And he said, the operator was drying the first batch. He went for a smoke. He came back and it was going ka-bump, ka-bump, ka-bump. And then the agitator drive sheer pin went. He said, it's a solid. It's a blank color solid. And I said, okay, so why are you just this angry? He said, well, I called the client. And they, their first words when I told them what, it, what happened were, oh, it happened to you too. <laughs> that was the best. They knew it was going to happen and they never told us. It was great. So yeah, they sent someone in to ch chisel out like several kilos of the sample. And then somehow they managed to dissolve that one. So yeah, that was fun. All the good old days. Yes, yes, yes. I uh, look for, hopefully you guys can join for our official Halloween. Just uh, warm Thanks for the fun stories. Yeah, see you. Yeah, thank you. Bye, Anne. Bye, 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 there you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash CMC live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.